Welcome to the Pivot Fund Pod, where we hold conversations that disrupt journalism and philanthropy. My name is Zuri Berry, and what follows is a previously recorded conversation on hiring development staff. Sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, this conversation is hosted by the founder of the Pivot Fund and its chief executive officer, Tracy Powell, as well as Mazen Sidiman, the co-founder and senior reporter at Documented in New York. Tracy will introduce our panelists. So hello, everybody. It's Tracy Powell coming at you most recently from the Racial Equity and Journalism Fund. I'm now the founder of the Pivot Fund. And just so that you know, the Pivot Fund is a new venture philanthropy fund designed to support publishers of color and immigrants and other traditionally marginalized publishers that serve those communities. I'm so excited today. We have this rock star panel. It's my dream panel, actually. Because as I learn, at the same time that you're learning about this philanthropy world, I wanted to get bring in the heavy hitters who know all about it. So today, uh, you'll hear from Lolly Bowen of the Field Foundation. She'll talk about the rules and realities on the ground when it comes to BIPOC publishers and philanthropy. Susan Gluck Papajan works with the American Journalism Project. She's a talent and organizational design consultant. And she'll share about challenges founders often make when it comes to recruiting and onboarding development staff and how to avoid some of those mistakes. She'll also talk about paying up, that kind of thing. Julia Howell Barrows is going to talk about the systems you need in place before you hire development staff. And she is a veteran fundraising consultant. And then Kaylin Somerville, most recently she worked with the Racial Equity and Journalism Fund. She's also the founder of Blue Umbrella Fundraising, and she'll talk about the alternatives to hiring full-time development staff. And because I know that you didn't come here to hear from me for the next hour, just without further ado, I want to say welcome and thank you. Thank you to our panelists and introduce you to our host du jour, the awesome Madeline Cedemet, um, the co-founder of Documented. And Mazin, I'm turning it over to you. You're in control now. Congratulations on hiring your first development director for Document at New York. Yes, thank you so much, Tracy. And I have to say thank you again to Tracy for putting us in a position where we were able to actually hire a development director. I spoke to Tracy a year ago, actually more than a year ago now, about the fact that, you know, I felt like Documented was ready for a development director. We weren't actually quite ready for a development director at that time. And through REJ, we were able to get additional support through the American Journalism Project that allowed us to just last week welcome our first development director at Documented. So that actually is a nice transition into where I want to start this conversation. There's a lot of publishers in this room who have this, who are probably having the same thought that I had, which is I'm done with fundraising. I don't want to raise money anymore. I want to hire someone who's going to take that off my plate. He's going to handle it for me. And I had to learn the hard way that that's not a realistic expectation. So when do you know that you're ready to hire a development director is a small and growing organization. When do you know it's time to pivot from just the founder taking care of all of the fundraising to like now having a team who handles that together with the founder? And I think, Julia, it sounded like your 
expertise probably fitted for this question. When is an organization ready to hire a development director? I think in my experience, it's been when you have a couple of wins under your belt, not necessarily when you're desperate to raise money. In my experience, what happens is people bring me in thinking that I will come in and actually do the fundraising for you. When in fact, what a development professional or consultant should be able to do is help you get organized, look at your contacts, look at your universes of who you know, maybe who you haven't been in touch with and maybe you're embarrassed to reach back out to them, but we'll get you organized to help you do that. You know, so I think it's it's really a, a point at which you know you've got a win or two, you've maybe gotten a grant and you want to use that as leverage to keep going and maybe you've got some additional contacts that you just haven't figured out how to even approach and you need another thought partner in the room to kind of help you get organized to do that and lay that out for you. Incredible. Incredible. Does anyone else want to add anything to that? Yes, I'd like to chime in, um, Mazen, and just kind of echo what Julia is saying. This is Lolly Bowen. First of all, the development director is not the person who is 100% in charge of bringing in money for the organization. Your development director is really in charge of trying to develop a strategy to raise the funds, to sort of empower and enable you as the creator of the organization, as the founder of the organization, to um, be able to expand, expand your capacity, expand your fundraising reach, help you develop the relationships so that you can find stability for the organization. So I want to be careful if we have some uh, people in the audience who may think, uh, as you said, Mazen, or alluded to, that, hey, I could hire somebody and it's going to be their, quote, responsibility to bring in all of this cash and bring in all of this money um, because it's not 100% on them. Their uh, job is to, again, help you market the organization and help you uh, help to serve as a bridge between you and the different ways of attracting funding. And so how do you know when you're, quote, quote unquote, ready? Well, one, I would say uh, coming uh, from the funding perspective and the funding community, you know you're ready when you have enough money to hire a person and attract them to even come into the organization, right? So starting off with a very modest budget and attempting to even hire someone and say, hey, come over to my organization and you raise this money so that we can become stable is less attractive than as Julia said, hey, I've already got this Mackenzie Scott money. You know, we got $2 million. I got this Craig Newmark money come through and let's use this as leverage so that we can raise more money to make this organization more stable. But what I have to offer you is not only a beautiful organization with a wonderful mission, I also can offer you some stability because I've already gotten investors on my fishing line. I hope that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And everyone's trying to get that Mackenzie Scott money currently. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we had to learn that the hard way that it's it's really about having the organization set up so that the person can come and exceed and setting the right expectations. So I really want to get into now, what does a development director actually do? When when I was like starting at this out before we actually worked with Susan and AJP to hire our current development director, I spoke to a, lot, a number of development directors to try and figure out what the job description would be. And I learned that you know, most development teams, there's people that are focused on major gifts, there's people that are focused on philanthropy, on foundations, sorry, you know, corporations, membership. So you really have to have a clear idea of the type of person you're looking for. And, you know, some development roles even expand beyond that. So yeah, I'd love it, Kaylin, if you would chime in maybe about what, what is what does a development director actually do? 
Yes. So I think it primarily will stem from what phase of development the organization is in. And so organizations are at different stages in their own development. So if we're at a position where the founder was doing most of the fundraising, making most of the connections, had the majority of the relationships, then I think it's really important to just level set in terms of we need to actually have systems and processes in place that will support um, the infrastructure and the technology required um, to actually do more robust and sophisticated fundraising. And so I always say that fundraising is like the last thing you do. You first have to have a culture of philanthropy, and then you have to also have the systems and the processes, what, what we call development in place. So you need standard operating procedures and you need policies about, you know, what gifts we'll receive and what we do with this you know, gift acceptance and, and all of that. And so a lot of times we want to skip right to asking for money when, you know, the infrastructure is not in place yet. So, you know, it just depends on what stage of development the organization is in as to, to what the development director will really be needed to do. We're talking about founders too and very entrepreneurial organizations. This is Susan Gluck, Papa John. So there's not a lot of big planning to get something off the ground, you know, so the founder is very opportunistic and gotten, has gotten some money in the door, but that might not be where the next tranche of money will come from. And so, you know, to understand where our strategy in terms of what are the target segments, are we going after individual giving? Is it philanthropy? Like you said, because the type of development director or do, or development manager, maybe you don't need a director who at that level, but you need someone who's really good at grants because that's where your money is going to come from. Or if you're in a situation where it's going to be more individual giving, which is going to get you to the next level, you need to look for a development um, executive who has that experience. So sometimes even at the front end, as you go from startup to institutionalizing and what Lolly was saying, putting processes in places and Kaylin was saying, you know, we need to institutionalize this now. It's not so opportunistic anymore. Sometimes getting a consultant in to do a feasibility study to really look at the context, look at what your organizational mission is and where the opportunity is. And then that can translate into, okay, do you need a director or do we need a manager with a particular expertise and start to hone who you need to come on board? I would also say, you know, also the founder, is the founder a good, you know, development? So often founders are the chief development officers because they're charismatic. They have this thing, but sometimes people are not. So the partnership with the founder is really important. And then if there's a board, the board, the partnership with the board too, because the board should really be helping with fundraising as well. So I just added a little bits of many things, but it's like thinking about all these things, but I don't think it's a bad idea for people to do some feasibility analysis before they go out there, because a lot of times the expectations are, okay, we need to raise money now. We need to raise a lot more money. We'll hire someone and they'll take care of it. And I think people have alluded to it. You know, you need to put process, 
people churn in development positions a lot because the boards and the founders or the executive directors don't, they're not realistic or they don't really understand what is actually possible. So that's where I think front end research to really look at what is possible and not get like blue skies and they're just kind of the silver bullet when this person comes in. We've all seen that. Right. Right. No, absolutely. And I really want to talk about burnout later because that's something that I've I, I've learned about in this field. And yeah, just really honing in on what it is you're expecting from this person and, and the skill set that you're really looking to bring will help you set that person up to success when they join from what I've learned and I'm hoping will happen with our new development director as well. Can I add you one know, little thing or no? Please, please. Okay. This is Julia Howell-Barros. I, I totally want to piggyback on everything that I said. And I feel like the biggest mistake I see clients making is they say, oh, we need Blackboard Razor's Edge. We need all of these things to really get into our fundraising. And what I talk to clients about, and this comes from me having started uh, as a fundraiser when I was promoted from a program manager position who had a successful grant that I renewed. And he said, my CEO said, you're going to be our development uh, person now, and you're going to start up the development shop. And I just basically used, I mean, just to give you a sense of how old I am, I can't even remember what, what the, it was access or something, I think was a spreadsheet, right? But I work with clients in Excel. And in some ways, what you need to do is practice and build that muscle of like controlling your data and who are your people that are currently on board with you or who are the lowest hanging fruit. And I think people get stuck in like, oh, we need McKinsey Scott. And you go down that rabbit hole as opposed to looking at who are really your inner circle of supporters, be they individual donors or corporate or foundation and starting from there. And I think that that's a really biteable chunk of where you can start when you're just looking at this and you get stuck and say, I can't even afford uh, Razor's Edge. So what am I going to do? Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I think thinking of it as like a project management exercise is, is super helpful. Lolly, I'd love to hear from you about pay. I think this is the kind of elephant in the room that, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about explicitly. And, you know, prevent is is really what, what made us fail at hiring a development director the first time. We had unrealistic expectations about how much we could afford with the salary that we had offered. We offered $60,000, which we learned in New York is just you cannot hire a development director at a $60,000 a year salary. So I'd love to hear from you about your experiences with that and what publishers should expect. Yeah, thank you for that question. And I'm going to um, enter an answer from two perspectives. Um, one, my perspective, just working as a reporter, um, because I worked as a reporter covering foundations um, for several years before I switched over to this funding side. And what I'd like to make sure that our audience is aware of is that you have organizations, uh, for example, I covered the Obama Foundation, and they had development directors on staff. And I mean, they have a full staff. It's nearly a dozen uh, development directors who are there in charge of trying to help them raise a significant chunk of funding, right? And so when you are essentially competing with organizations of that size and of that name and reputation, you have to remember that what you are offering a development director and what you're asking them for has to be, as you said, Mazen, realistic, right? And so you're bringing in one single individual person into that door. And it is a very competitive field because again, you're not just competing against the startups. 
you are also competing against those established organizations that they almost have an army of fundraisers, right? They almost have an army of development directors. Um, and so when you, so it's kind of the salary to answer your question is gonna vary from organization to organization and based on the expectations and the benefits and the mission of the organization, right? And so one of the things that we're finding that's a complication in the Chicago region is that we have some really ambitious and beautiful news organizations, digital news startups that are in the position to hire a development director for the first time. Um, but again, as you alluded to, the salary is out of reach for the budget that they have. On average in the Chicago region, development directors um, earn between $75,000 all the way up to $200,000, depending on their experience. And so even for fields, um, the organization that I work for, we give grants that are capped at $50,000. And I've had a number of organizations come in and ask us for funding um, to, uh, to fund a particular position, the development director position. And I've had to be real with them and say, if we fund this, where are you going to fill that gap? Because you can't hire someone full time um, in Chicago or in the Chicago land region, anyone who has that type of experience for this modest of a budget. Right. Um, and so it's important to keep in mind, again, just what you're competing against in the region that you're in. Perhaps if you were in more of a rural area or um, a smaller area where the salaries are, the cost of living is a little bit lower and the salaries are able to meet that, you could hire a development director for $50,000. But as you know, Mazen, you know, you, you'll get laughed at in New York. You'll get laughed at in Los Angeles trying to hire someone and tell them that you want them to raise. Um, upward of half a million dollars to make your organization stable to develop this plan. And you you can barely uh, pay them enough to cover their rent, right? Yes. Yeah, we learned that the hard way for sure. I, I, with the support of AJP now, the salary that we hired on is 125000 which I think is like competitive in, in New York. But, you know, I'd love to hear from Susan as well about this, but also from Kaylin about if your budget doesn't meet that, what are the alternatives that you could look at? You know, if, let's say $50,000 is your cap. What are some other creative approaches you could get to bring people on in consultant capacities or different capacities? So I'll let Susan go and then Caleb. You go ahead. So for from the consulting angle. This is Kaylin Somerville. I think it's very important to just be very concrete what the actual goal is. And so a lot of times, you know, we talked about readiness for a development director. And Susan pointed out, you know, a lot of times you need somebody to come in, do that feasibility study, do an audit, do an assessment to say, OK, you have all of these things going for you as an organization when it comes to planning and readiness, when it comes to board acumen, when it comes to, you know, the culture of philanthropy, the data, as Julia um, may mention, you have lists, they're organized, you have some systems in place then you can kind of have a more structured approach to say, this is the one area where we're, we have a deficiency. We need to support that area right now so that it can position us to actually be ready for a full team or for us to take um, advantage of different opportunities that are, you know, here. So maybe you're trying to, you know, do a matching campaign or maybe you have an individual campaign or it's year end or, you know, you're trying to go after the Kellogg brand or something else that is pretty substantial and you don't internally have the capacity or the expertise 
you know, immediately to take advantage. And so with that, you can bring on a consultant or someone that can basically give you support in those deficient areas. A lot of times that'll come by way of strategy. Like Lolly said, you know, they can be that strategic partner. And sometimes they partner with you as a practitioner or, you know, interim staff to help you fill in those gaps. But, you know, a a good consultant or consulting firm is going to be able to position you in a way where you can just maximize the capacity and the things that you already have at your access. And so one of the other um, key points that I believe either Lolly or Julia made mention of was visibility and the opportunity to really maximize your brand. You have to be able to differentiate yourself amongst a very crowded marketplace. And so a lot of times organizations are like, you know, well, I'm a journalist organization that is all about race equity. Okay, it's a hundred other ones in your neighborhood doing the same thing. <laughs> what makes you different? What's the what's the value proposition? What is the benefit of you know supporting your organization and and all of those things? And so you know you can't have a website that has no information. You can't um, have social media with no engagement. All of these things you know definitely feed into you know what you might need a consultant for to help gird up those those deficient areas to to take you to the next level. So that's what I was saying. I, I can pass it back to Susan. I I agree with everything you said, Kayla. You know, the thinking, the research ahead of time will save you a lot of time if you're realistic. And so maybe you don't need a full-time chief development officer yet. Maybe your founder is really, really good and they need a consultant to partner with them and then start to strategically target where the low-hanging fruit is and gain more momentum. And maybe you hire a full-time person a little later, you know, and that type of person, maybe it's a manager, maybe it's a director of development, maybe it's a grant writer. So I think really not jumping, not like having a um, knee-jerk reaction. Okay, we got this money. We need a head of development. I think slowing down and thinking about really who you are, where money could come from, the strength of your board, the strength of your founder, these are all going to help you navigate, you know, where you put your money and effort. And I think a consultant can really, really be helpful in the front end, thinking through these things instead of just diving into the water and saying, I need this. So if it's a feasibility study, an audit, Again, evaluating, you know, the people you have on board already. You know, there are pe- some people who they may be a reporter and they could be really good sending out to raise money, you know. So I think the upfront thinking and a consultant can be really, really helpful. And they can also help you do the fundraising too. You know, they can be an interim person. And then you sort of walk before you start running. Can I also add one thing from my own experience of when I was still working full-time pre-consultancy? This is Julia Howell-Barros. I made the move from a national level, from a chief development officer at the national level to a local organization here in Washington, D.C. And I knew right away that they wouldn't be able to meet my salary requirements. However, the organization that I went to happened to be an early childhood education organization, and I negotiated that my fees for my childcare 
would be half off, right? Now, I understand that the folks on this call are not in the childcare industry, but I think we're in a moment nationally, right, where we've been in this mode for 16 months. What is your tolerance for folks doing remote work? What is your tolerance for folks working less than 40 hours a week? What are there other benefits? Can you be creative about how flexible you can be or things that you can add given where you are in your market, who your organizational partners might be that would add value. Because we're in this moment where a lot of people are looking at work-life balance and what is it that's going to make me happy, right? And so we know that numbers don't necessarily result in a person staying, at, but, you know, the full package might be helpful. So if you can think a little bit about creatively about what you could do to make up for that, which you cannot pay, that's also worth taking some time to think about. Mm-hmm. If I could just chime in too, because um, I'd like to build on what Susan said and what Julia said. Molly Bowen. You know, I'm looking at the audience and just so excited and happy to see um, some uh, some wonderful journalists who have built organizations like Wendy Thomas over at MLK 50. I got uh, Jesus from La Raza. I'm giving a couple shout outs to uh, Irene. Uh, one of our um, wonderful news organizations, Cicero Independiente, and uh, Gary Pierre Pierre, whose work at the Haitian Times we need so importantly right now in this moment, right? So you have these journalists who have started these news organizations, and Susan, you're exactly right that you can hire a consultant rather than worrying about Maz in $150,000 salary for someone full time and get a consultant who is aligned with your principles, your mission, and values. One that understands that these news organizations need stability and that they serve the community and that consultant can help you begin to strategize and also serve to introduce you to the person that could in Uh, eventually take on that full-time position, right? They could kind of lay that foundation for you and serve as a bridge, as Julia was saying, uh, to something uh, that's more concrete later on. And so, you know, they are, you're crawling before you're running, you're crawling before you're walking uh, as you uh, start to engage consultants and begin to really evaluate what your organization needs in creating a concrete timeline for when you want to hire a full-time development director or office manager or begin to building out the business section of the staff. And I think it's just so important to say that because again, so many of these news organizations are anchored by journalists who are committed to the craft. And for many of us, we worked in the newsroom investigating, writing and reporting, you know, that's where our passion lies. And then you start an organization and it's like, wait, I gotta raise money. I gotta handle invoices. You know, we don't want any Anything to do with that because in professional newsrooms we never had to it was like a, a brick wall between us and the business side so hiring a consultant can be that wonderful sort of bridge to get you over the hump absolutely yeah it's the story of my life and many of the people in this call i'm sure um <laughs> learning about the philanthropy world yeah this is all great advice also building off of what julianne lolly and susan said as well that when we went through our process, we when we couldn't find someone at the salary that we were advertised at, we met somebody who really liked our mission, who usually worked organizations where they made a lot more money and they were willing to accept our salary to work with us part-time as an interim development director before we began our search again. And they actually laid the groundwork for 
you know, they built a development plan for us. They helped us with creating a board recruitment strategy, a board one page of, you know, what we're expecting from the board, a gift acceptance policy, a lot of things that Kayla mentioned as well. They basically were a consultant, you know, but they, they were a part-time staffer. So, I, yeah, I couldn't recommend that approach enough. This is another question that I experienced when I was going through the development search is that the field is incredibly white. You know, the the majority of the applications that we got were white development directors. I, as an editor, make it my mission to always be looking for talent who are coming from diverse backgrounds, always trying to find people who are writing for different outlets about our, our field, but I'm not plugged into the development space. So I kind of just was dropped into it and was really struggling to navigate it and find diverse candidates. So A, I was wondering if you all had thoughts on why that is, you know, as people go into their searches, they'll probably experience these similar things. And if there are ways to organizations that people should be looking towards that are trying to uplift development staff, fundraising staff that come from diverse backgrounds, anybody can take this. I think everybody's taken the questions so far. I'll jump in. Kaylin Somerville. I feel like it depends what position is being advertised, the, the likelihood that the position will be filled by a diverse candidate. You know, oftentimes when it comes to major gift fundraising or something that's external facing, you typically will look for someone, um, and this has been my experience, that um, you feel would, you know, be able to relate or have conversations with someone who's actually given the money at a very high level in terms of like a philanthropist or, you know, a, a, a high net worth individual. And so a lot of times that will equate to a white woman or a white man and a chief position who's doing the, the most external facing work within the organization. And that's just, it, it's really a dearth when it comes to being able to to engage constituencies on a level that is congruent to your mission. So if your mission is saying that we are excited about having diverse perspectives and diverse vantage points and you know we're we're committed to you know engaging a full public square and we're excited about the fullness of the industry and, and all of the different voices and the stories that are to be told, then that should also be reflective of how you hire. You know, oftentimes we, as development folks, we get rewarded for telling the worst stories about our organization. Without our organization, everybody would be poor and everybody would, you know, not have anything and, and all of this kind of thing. But when you have somebody from different backgrounds, a lot of times you can give other sides of the, the story that is actually going to help edify your organization and actually coincide with things that you can actually do and commit to. Um, oftentimes, people that aren't connected to the, the organization itself, they don't understand journalists, they um, don't understand the industry itself. They might make promises to certain philanthropists that, hey, we can do X, Y, and Z. And then when right. it comes time to actually implement or execute, you don't have anybody that is actually going to do those things. And so somebody who is actually intimately connected to your organization, 
that understands and values the vantage point of, of that constituency, I think is very important to be the external facing entity of your organization as well. So um, I can't stress it enough. It's, it's really a missed opportunity for a lot of groups. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in that area alone. I mean, the simple answer to your question, Mazin, is institutionalized racism, right? Julia Howell Barrows. And that we don't have access to money. We don't have access to the institutions that provide money. And therefore, those of us, well, people who raise money here generally by and large white. I think, though, what I often talk to clients about, and even this morning, I'm doing a search in Greensboro, North Carolina for an African-American-led organization. And I was talking to a, a young Black man about, and I really try to coach these people because I see a lot of potential. He doesn't have all of the boxes checked with respect to fundraising, but as he was talking, he's done the work. He knows how to make connections. He knows how to organize a campaign. So in some ways, it's incumbent on those of us in the field to kind of talk people through and say, you need to market yourself a little bit differently and use this language, use this lingo and position yourself in such a way that shows that you can help the organization reach its solutions with respect to fundraising and set up a campaign, even if where you worked and he was in a university setting hasn't necessarily given you that full agency to do that. You're proving to me you've done that just by the language you're using. So, you know, it's a little bit of a grassroots approach and it's a heavy lift and it's constant. But I do think I look for the non-traditional fundraiser types because that's where I came from. I came from program. And if I feel like if you know how to write, you're organized, you can keep a calendar and you stay on task and can juggle a lot of balls, then you have potential to be a development person, whatever capacity that might be. So I encourage people a lot to use that liberal arts approach to finding staff who, who can get the job done. And that, that widens the scope quite a bit in terms of diversity for folks. I would just want to jump in and say 95% of fundraisers did not go to school for fundraising. Kaylin Somerville. You have... Columbia University, you have Indiana School of Philanthropy. There's a couple in between that have certain programs. Georgetown has an executive, you know, certificate, but this is not something we went to school with. You either are born with it or you're not. You know how to make connections, you're confident, you know, those types of things. And I've worked with hundreds of fundraisers, and most of them were unqualified <laughs> for a lot of the work. You know, you you have the personality to get out there and try it, take risks. You know, you can follow up. You have due diligence. You are okay with rejection. You you know, you're tenacious, like those types of things. And so in terms of being able to, you know, check boxes and things like that is another disservice, especially within our industry. You know, development folks are really good at fudging numbers and saying, I raised a billion dollars at this organization. If you know anything about fundraising, it wasn't one person that did anything, to Lolly's point. Like, if we are all in this together, from the program officer to the founder to the, the executive director to everyone. And so I think, you know, we just have to be more critical that somebody that comes up with this nice, shiny portfolio saying, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years um, and I raised a bajillion dollars, they're probably lying through their teeth. 
Um, how long were they there? They were there for six months and they raised $3 million. Mm-mm, they didn't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we'll go with, okay, well, they got this good recommendation. They looked apart the and, you know, they went to a prestigious school or they know, you know, this philanthropist in our community. And so we're going to go ahead and, and take a risk. And then the five, six months later, they did the same thing to us that they did to the last organization they were with. So I, I just think, you know, the box check-in and, you know, to say qualifications and things like that, to Julia's point, it definitely has to be more expansive than, than the traditional approach at every, at every end. Oh, no, I just wanted to kind of agree um, and echo some of the things that Kaylin said. Molly Bowen. That the ideal development director may not have the so-called resume, um, but they're flexible. They have a good attitude, a take charge attitude. They have a sunny disposition uh, and are really optimistic about what they can do. One part of the question that you asked, Mazen, was uh, why is the industry so white? To complicate the conversation a little bit, it is complicated to ask black and brown people to go and ask for money. Right. Particularly in these majority white industries like philanthropy. But there are so many benefits to making sure that, again, your development director looks like your community, because we have to remember that as uh, much as we have these new news organizations, that we have these new startup uh, storytelling groups, that there are some historic organizations that have mastered raising money within their community. Uh, Not all of the philanthropists are white. Right. In fact, African-Americans give more uh, on a per giving uh, ratio than our white counterparts. Right. So if you have a development director, if you have a consultant who is connected to the community that can go out to your community and instead of raising a million dollars from one person, can raise a thousand dollars from individual residents who believe in your mission and know that you're serving the community, that's just as effective. And then when you get into the room to have those conversations uh, with philanthropy, with foundations, when that person gets in the room to build those relationships, they can say that we are connected to our community and it shows because we have this much invested into our success. I also think that Susan Gluck, Papa John, into this point of checking the boxes, et cetera. If you're, you know, rather small organization still, you don't need someone who's a sophisticated person who came out of a hospital or something. And you cannot, you need someone, I think what people are saying, who connect, who are authentic, represent the community. So you can go into for-profit fields looking for good salespeople. We're, you know, so there are proxies for this talent and other, maybe someone who's worked in retail or, you know, who know how to sell and are managers of a portfolio of customers. So thinking not it just not development talent, there could be people to open it up to people who've, you know, been selling in a way. I think as if you when you get into, you know, where I see people get afraid of hiring someone who doesn't have a development background when the numbers get bigger and they need to get bigger numbers soon. And so the executive directors or boards or whoever's giving them money want someone who has a track record, if you can believe it or not, is another issue, but um, that or know how, you know, who know the 
databases and who've done, you know, the research and, you know, the fundraising software and all that, like Razor's Edge or whatever. So, but I think for a lot of these community-based or we are in a very entrepreneurial phase. So you can, you don't need to hire necessarily traditional fundraisers and you can broaden your, you know, scope and how you look for people. I also think boards are really important. We've touched about that. You know, a development person coming in is working in partnership. And people have said that before. It's not just a one-man person or one person, female, they, whatever, going out and like, okay, it's just my responsibility. It's a responsibility, a culture of fundraising within the whole organization. And that boards really, really can help you know, with the fundraising and with the person leading that. And so having an effort to get a board that's committed and who's going to open doors for your development person. If you have someone from the community who doesn't have, you know, the traditional fundraising experience, board members can mentor that person, you know, if you, and so that part those partnerships open doors to people and networks. So, I mean, I think a lot of the fundraising communities is white is white because people hire people for their Rolodexes. And so if you're a white person and you're like, you might not even have fundraising experience, but your husband is in certain networks or whatever, they'll take a chance on you because they're hiring a Rolodex. So it gets into all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, a board member's also coming board on board that are strategic, you know, that everyone is helping everyone else can really help new people coming into development that represent the community. Amazing, amazing answers from everyone. Can I say one thing about the Rolodex? Please. <laughs> having it Rolodex. Okay. So, <laughs> so we all have our networks. And when you might be at one job or one consulting gig. You don't always bring your entire Rolodex to every opportunity. And that's why we are able to keep our Rolodex the way that it is, is because we're so strategic about who we call on and how we use different ones. And so a lot of times that's also a, a trick bag, for lack <laughs> of a better term, because you might say, oh, she knows Mackenzie Scott. So she's going to get Ms. McKenzie's got money. Mm -mm. No, McKenzie told me not to get no money for this organization because she don't like this. <laughs> Just like I, and I always tell people, I have $20 that I could spare, but I don't give $20 to the first person that asked me. I don't give $20 to somebody necessarily that is a good cause. I, you know, we all can determine how we want to give our money, no matter how much we have to, to give. And so, you know, a good fundraiser is always going to be very cognizant about the, the giving behaviors, the interest, the desires. And that's why we can keep the, the folks in the fold that we do have. So I, I just wanted to say that, like, you know, people are like, oh, yes, we got the Rolodex and they ain't going to use everybody in that Rolodex um, <laughs> if they're smart. So um, that's all. So imagine we are coming up on time. We got that. I mean, that has gone by. It flew by. It flew by. This is such a great conversation. Um, I want to open it up to questions from audience. And I, I have a couple that I've written down 
And so I want to just, I'll put it out there generally, or you can help guide me, Mazin. But the first question, any advice for hiring a development assistant with the idea that that person will become development director in the future? What I would say is to think about the responsibilities that that person is going to have to take on. Is it managing the relationships and managing the grants that you already have, uh, managing relationships with uh, donors that you already have? Um, And think about, again, the person's um, skills, not necessarily their resume, but do they bring that bright disposition? Are they able to represent your organization's mission, not only to the um, donors, but to the public? Are they able to give that three-minute elevator pitch of your organization because they know it and they embrace it just as much as you do as a founder. So many times, um, again, as Mazen alluded to earlier, the founders of the organization, the creators, want to hand the duties off to the development director or the assistant, but they are the best spokesperson. They are the best salesman for their organizations because they know the mission and they know it in and out. So if you're going to turn it over to an assistant, that person needs to be just as enthusiastic, just as steep, just um, as have just a passion for your organization because they are um, transitioning into being the new face. So, you know, being able to one, manage those relationships, manage that paperwork, you know, manage um, the actual technicalities of filling out grant applications and filling out reports, but then also having that disposition of being able to sell your organization. Those are some of the qualities I would look for. And I would say, too, I think it's important on you as the executive or the head of your organization to really be clear about what works for you in terms of how development staff interact with you. I've had a range of executives that I work with who would encourage me to do the pitch, right, versus others who loved me passing stickies and saying, don't forget about this, don't forget about that, you know, so I would do that at the table. So I think it's really important to help your staff, set them up for success and tell them how you work best, right? To the point of like, I don't want 10 emails a day. I want one at the end of the day from you. I want, you know, that type of a thing because that will just set up a really strong working relationship between you and your development staff. And you really, really, really need that and build that trust and just mutual respect that I think is so important to this relationship. Julie, I want to highlight something that you said earlier in answer, in response to this question, because you can hire a development assistant or a development director, but at the end of the day, it's the founder who is usually the one making the ask. So it's really, even, I mean, even if you have, you hire that person with the eye of making that person the developer, development director later, you're still the one at the end of the day who's going to make the ask. So I just want people to be realistic about that. What would you recommend? What would you recommend the top 10 things you should do to, in onboarding a new development manager? And what kind of support system should you provide? Um, I'm going to, ask Susan to answer that question. I don't know if you can get the 10 things, but maybe top three or five. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it really depends on what your, what, where your organization is. So you're, if you're onboarding to a small organization that it's the first person, you know, who's going to be there, it's very different from onboarding a development director who's re- replacing another development director. So I think in the, 
in terms of our audience, we're talking more of the person that's likely to be the first person coming on board. Is that correct? I think so in this publisher's case. Yeah, yeah. So I think the relationship between the founder and the person who's going to raise money is the most important relationship. And I've seen founders who say they want a partner to do this work and help cultivate because they have so many other things on their plate. But then there's a lot of tension that starts to happen because the founder is used to being the face. They're, they, this is their baby. And th they don't have the trust in the person coming in. And it's hard for them to let go of some of the relationships, even though they might do the final ask, letting people cultivate, opening their kimono of, you know, their relationships, et cetera. So these are the very beginning days in terms of onboarding someone in this new fundraising role. I think that developing a partnership with the executive director and I think like, Julie, how do you like to work together? How, you know, not being explicit about the expectations with each other and having a really good working relationship. And then the board, if you have a board of directors, that this development manager or director really needs to get to know the board. And then the board and the executive director start to help this person with the relationships, especially if they're not geographically, you know, knowledgeable coming from, again, if you're coming out of, you hire someone who hasn't done development before, you know, and foundation managers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's very different than when you're just replacing a current director of development. I mean, there's obviously some of the same things, but to me, where I see the problems are really with the founder and the person coming as the first development manager and developing a trusted partnership. And a founder also learning to let go and to delegate. And that can be very, and it can have, and then a development person not expecting them just to hand over everything at the beginning too. So I think people should think of this as a very, very special relationship and to invest in that and spending time together, even, you know, if it means coffee or whatever, because the trust and learning how to work together is so super important. And, and founders often, you know, they don't want this, the organization to get away from them. Excellent point. Excellent point. Learning to let go. That's, I think, is really critical and what things you're going to let go. But you can't expect a founder to do that right away either. It takes time. They have to trust the person that they'll take care of their baby, that they yes. just give their life to. And so that's a touchy-feely answer, but I, that's how, what I've seen, that relationship building. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for that. The next question we have. I'm I know sorry. you want to. I know you want to move on, Tracy. Okay. But you know, if I could just add to Susan, I just feel compelled to add some of the you know sort of um, nuts and bolts about when you talk about the top ten things that people need to onboard. A development director is a very administrative position, and it's there. You know, it's public facing. There's a lot of uh, relationships and conversations. But just as a concrete answer, they also need access to the language. So if you have the library 
um, of documents that are at your disposal so that, that when they begin to fill out applications for funders, they can get a hold of those 990s, that you have a concrete written budget, um, a, a budget forecast and an actual spending budget. You know, they're just some, some really sort of concrete information that they need in order to really execute on the mission. How much are you actually trying to raise? You know, an actual goal bar, not just, hey, come in, raise money, but hey, we are trying to raise $500,000 in the next year so that we can do X, Y, and Z, very specific, so that we can hire for this role, so that we can um, have this much in our endowment. You know, so having some of this concrete language in files and in documents so that they're not just trying to manifest a mission off the top of their head based on the conversations that you had, but you have an actual written mission statement. You have an actual a written goal statement. You have some approved and written budget statements that you know that you've ran by your accountant. All of those administrative pieces are important if you want to get this person started and get them on the ground running so that they're not trying to generate this information on their own. Mm-hmm. Lolly, as a funder, can you talk a little bit more about expectations, what you expect to see and hear from the founder versus what you expect to see and hear from from development staff? Yeah, well, you know, Field is unique in that our mission is to uh, give uh, equitably and to make sure that we are giving and targeting communities that have historically been overlooked, both by the mainstream dominant media and by philanthropy. So what we're looking for is one, a development director who um, is excellent right, who is executing in terms of turning this paperwork in, turning in these documents and being able to articulate your mission and your need. Tracy, one of the things that uh, I will find uh, frustrating is when I get on a Zoom call or I get on the phone with someone and they don't have a specific ask or they ask for the maximum without being able to explain to me what they need it for. Right. We all need money and want money for our organizations. But what are you what do you need this money for? So a development director needs to have a connection to the organization, the organization's needs. And again, be able to talk in the specifics about how this organization serves and what this money is going to be spent for. I have found that in many cases it is because we're dealing with grassroots, smaller organizations, some of them that are startups, but some of them that have been around for more than 50 years, again, it is usually the founder that is the best advocate for the organization. And it's the development director or the development consultant that comes in you know, after the first call, after the sell, and says, in summary, via email, this is what we need, this is what we're asking for, here's our application, X, Y, Z, this is how we're able to receive the money. This is our timeline for expenditures. So one, it's important for a field that the development director is connected to the mission, connected to the community and reflects our community in Chicago, you know, both racially and demographically. But it's also important that we have that connection to the founder so that we can feel that passion. We can feel that dedication. We can feel that devotion. Does that answer? It does. It does. Thank you. I have one other question. Well, two other ones. Can you talk a bit more about reasonable expectations for a part-time tip position, wage, hours, scope of work? And um, that's for Susan and Julia. I'll jump in. I think what I, I might have answered that one in the text, but I think it's really important for you to write down exactly what you think the scope of work is, what you have, 
And that will help you set up a list that would ultimately be the scope of work or the job description. What does your funding list look like now? What does your board look like now? Your board engagement. How much time do you spend fundraising versus how much time do you want to be spending fundraising as an executive at the organization? What type of things do you feel like you need to complement your work? Is it someone who will do data entry for you to really, is it someone who will manage your calendar? We were talking about that before the call, right? And making sure you're organized. So that's kind of a starting point. And often what I find with my consulting clients is what they think they need isn't really what they need. So there's often a shift that happens while I'm working with folks that As I'm doing discovery around, you know, the culture of philanthropy at the organization or roles that have been, you know, not done well in the past or anything, there are some behaviors that need to be adjusted sometimes um, with respect to fundraising. So and sometimes only a consultant can really help you find that. But I think just initially kind of creating that laundry list of what you think you need. And sometimes putting things on that list that you've heard a few times, but you don't necessarily like that much or you don't want to acknowledge you need is also important to kind of put out there. Thank you. Thank you. Susan, do you have anything to add? No, I was thinking Kaylin may have some um, in her capacity insights as well. (laughs) Kaylin? Sure. I, I just echo everything that Julia said. I think that it's just really important that we get like an internal evaluation too. And so like Julia said that she was a program officer and Lolly was a reporter. I think it's really important that you also get the sentiment from the rest of the team as well. What might be necessary because they're actually a little closer to the work. I know Susan also made mention of building a relationship with the founder and the leadership of the organization. And I think, you know, building a relationship with your colleagues is also often a misstep with development directors. They, you know, they write grants without, you know, connecting with the programs team. They embellish stories that they might have heard from a report that has recently come out, but they don't have all the details. And so now they're misspeaking, you know, in conversations. So I think that that's also important in in terms of any type of evaluation, onboarding connection, you know, that there is a connection with the internal team. You know, so if you're a temp, I think it still applies. And wage wise, I would consider them a quasi consultant. You know, so depending on what's customary in your area for the the level of skill and expertise you're requiring, I would, you know, mirror that to, you know, bring somebody in with that that same kind of capacity. We have a question about software, anything beyond Excel that we should be using as publishers. I know Salesforce is is a tremendous tool if you can afford it, but what else is out there? I also responded in the chat that I have some clients who are smaller budgets who have had a lot of success using Little Greenlight. And, you know, I don't have any affiliate. I don't promote them, but they've been a good software solution for some of my clients and donor perfect. um, And they're relatively affordable for a smaller organization. So I, I would just want to distinguish between a constituent relationship management database. So that's Salesforce versus other software that is also going to be great instruments for you to raise money. So like mobile calls, which will allow you to do text to give and text to pledge, I think is amazing. It also helps with like crowdfunding if you're trying to mobilize like an individual cohort of donors. 
I think it's also really important to, you know, just also be flexible when it comes to something that plugs into other things that are already existing. So, you know, like Salesforce will plug into QuickBooks. So now your accounting and your fundraising is matching. And so there's no discrepancy with the auditors. That's another big key thing that development directors get pulled into is that good old audit. Um, <laughs> and so you just want to make sure there's no discrepancies there. And then uh, double the donation is something that I really like as well, where it's like a plug-in. So when people make a donation online to your organization, it'll say, hey, do you work at Microsoft or do you work here? You know, they match your gift, you know, three to one or, or whatever. So that's also something else you should consider is double the donation. We have one more minute of this really great session. I want to get to this last question. And then I want to close out. But how long do you think it would take to develop the relationship between the founder and the new business development person? For not too long. <laughs> as long as it takes. As long as it takes. Um, it just depends on the personality, I think. But as long as it takes. Depends on the personality and the experience of the person um, and the type of relationship that you want to build. You don't want to rush, but you do want them to hit the ground. Thank you all. Thank you all. I'm so just warm inside and blessed to have such incredible people, panelists and attendees at the, during this session, our very first session of the Pivot Fund. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate you being here and all of the thoughtful things that you've said. And hopefully we will meet again real soon. Thank you, Tracy. This is incredible. Bye, everybody.